even if you're not doing the thing that's bang on what you want to do day to day, these, these side hustles can really pay off. It did well, but I burnt out. I did it for five years and I burnt out. Wouldn't it be lovely to have that comfort blanket? But it wouldn't. So literally sit down five breaths where you breathe in, hold it for five, breathe out, hold it for five. Hello, and welcome to Workle's Happiness Podcast. I'm Mark Price, the founder of Workle, a platform designed to help everybody get happier at work. I used to be the boss of Waitrose and the deputy chair of the John Lewis Partnership, and it's there that I began my interest in how we work and how being happier at work can not only transform an individual's life, but transform an organisation. On this podcast, I find out how happy people really are at work and discuss what steps they take to get happier. On this edition of the Work All Happiness podcast, I'm really thrilled to be joined by Rowan Gosh. Now, as many of you may know, Rowan Gosh was a journalist. He worked for the BBC and ITN, and he's now turned into a successful entrepreneur, working with Innovate UK and Fortune 500 companies to create social good. He's the founder of Epiphany and the host of Self-Centred with Rowan, a podcast which follows conversations with purpose-led individuals and sets out new ways of thinking, living and working with purpose. Rowan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Uh, thank you for that intro. I really appreciate it. I think whenever I, I do my podcast and I introduce people, I, I you always pick the best bits, don't you? And it kind of makes you sound like you've had a plan and this was always going to be the thing. You were going to go through this, you know, this very clear, very structured route to do what you end up doing. But actually, mine couldn't be any more obsequious. You know, it goes all over the place, left to right, up and down. And and I think that's a lot of the time the best way. Um but I'm sure we'll get into that. So I went. Yeah. I went, well, I went. <laughs> well, well. Let's start with that. So, so when you were at school, did did you have firm plans for what you wanted to do? So, did you want to be a train driver or an astronaut, or did you want to be a journalist and on the TV? I mean, what what did you want to do? I think my mum had a load of uh, stuff. She's basically a hoarder, and she keeps everything that I've ever had in the loft. And she pulled some stuff out the other day, which were drawings from when I was. I must have been nine or 10. And I was basically drawing adverts for sports people. And, um, you know, like almost fake Nike or Adidas adverts. And I, I'd completely forgotten that. And I obviously, you know, fast forward to my mid twenties and I end up being a sports journalist. And fast forward another five, six, seven years and I end up in advertising. <laughs> so. It's um, definitely no, I had no clue. I think there are some very lucky people who from a very young age get given a film camera or a paintbrush or something vocational and they know then I wanna do that for the rest of my life. I think most of us, the rest of us don't have a clue, but possibly it's always there, you know, as, as this may be proved, it's always kind of lingering and maybe it's just hard to find it. How would you describe your school years? I mean, were, were you entrepreneurial? Did you kind of flog bags of crisps or something? I mean, oh. what was your what were your school days like? It's hilarious. It's funny that you say that because when I was fourteen, I was a member. My big thing was tennis. Always tennis, and I any spare moment I had, I would go and play tennis. I remember a friend of mine and I. They closed down the tuck shop at the tennis club and it was a big, you know, this was big news because to all the juniors, all we could, all we wanted to do, especially after we just played a set, is eat chocolate and pop. And uh, our parents weren't there, so it was ideal. They closed it down, I can't remember why. So we went to the cash and carry as 14 year olds and we bought wagon wheels and tangy toms and all those hideous, you know, calorific, um, calorific foods. And we sold them there. And actually we came to an agreement with the tennis club where they would, we would have to pay a little, it was a proper P&L. <laughs> We'd have to pay to, to be able to do that. And that was kind of my first sort of, you know, butting heads. And it came, it came because I saw, we saw that there was a need, you know, that the need was there. And that's, if you boil it down, that's the premise of, of business. You, you see there's a need and you, you try and fulfill that need in a new way, or in our case, 
in, in just the, the, the way that we had with the means that we had. You know, you talk about bootstrap. <laughs> that was on our bikes <laughs> with rucksacks. So, yeah, I think I think there's always been a little a little entrepreneurial spark. As I went to university, I started DJing and that was a kind of little side business um, as well, which, you know, you'd have to approach the clubs. You'd have to create your your sets, your mixes. This is the days of vinyl. It wasn't cheap. You'd have to record it, um, you know, get get your face out there, get known. And the publicity side obviously was more with that. We used to create billboards a little you know things that we would get printed and then we would pay people illicitly to go and put them around the city so that people would know the event was on this is obviously in the 90s before we had social media or, or, or smartphones so I think it's always it's always been there and and actually when I was at the BBC as, as much as I loved it and there was quite quite an entrepreneurial path in the in the BBC because I it wasn't that I ever, you know, did a, a, a media course and then went on a graduate scheme to the BBC. I got in through the back door. You know, I got in as a temp. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I climbed my way, became a journalist, became a presenter. And that was, again, that's quite entrepreneurial. But the reason I'm telling you this, and I don't want to go too far ahead, is because I've, I think I felt a bit restricted at the BBC. You know, having been quite entrepreneurial as a kid, to go to a big corporation, to go to see auntie and stay with her for a while, I found it a little bit restrictive. Sometimes she would not let me out in the evening. Sometimes, uh, you know, it was a little bit, yeah, a little bit restrictive. So, so, so tell us about that because so many people listening to this will think, you know what, I'd love, I'd love to be a presenter. I'd love to be a reporter. I'd love to work for the BBC. So how did all of that come about? You're at university and you're a DJ and doing all these things. How, what, what happened? It's a good question, actually. I, and this is where the word obsequious is so relevant. You know, it's not a linear path and it certainly wasn't for me. I, I, I graduated from Bath uh, with, with, with languages, with modern languages. And um, I think a lot of arts graduates face the same problem. And if you haven't been lucky enough to do a hobby in your spare time and, you know, maybe pick up a camera when you're 15 and start shooting Super 8 or start shooting little shorts, you maybe you end up with an art, as an arty person with a degree with no clear path of where to take it. And lots of people that I know that similar situations to me, they might fall into, you know, marketing or they might fall into um, sales or, or careers that really aren't that connected to where their hearts are. And it's difficult, you know, if you, if you I've got friends who, who were arty who've ended up doing law conversions. Did they dream of doing that? Probably not, but it is hard for people um, who come out with a BA, I think. So I, I attempt, I attempt in London, I lived with some friends from uni days and I just tempt and you, you know, my hobby was DJing, but it didn't, it wasn't an easy one to pull off. And I, to be honest, I didn't even try. Maybe I should have, but um, we'd be sitting here having a very different conversation, but I, I, I did about nine months of temping. And then I, I thought, you know what, I don't have a clue. And I was temping in TV companies again. Is that the ether? Is that, I didn't plan that. That's just where the temp jobs were. But I was doing finance, you know, doing admin and data entry, which was I used to literally drop off doing it, actually fall asleep at my desk um, whilst doing it. And I think I got to a point nine months in and I just said, you know, I'm going to do something to try and broaden my horizons and try and work it out. I'm not going to work it out while I'm doing this for eight hours a day. I'd saved not much money at all. And I just literally jumped on a plane and went around the world for two years. And I... I'd, because I didn't I hadn't planned it properly I didn't have much money so instead of being you know these backpackers I was a backpacker but instead of being a backpacker who had saved enough and could go around and visit places I'd literally have to find work so <laughs> I remember being so skint the first day I landed in Bangkok just having a a mosquito net and finding I literally wanted to find the cheapest room to sleep in on Koh San Road in Bangkok, where all the backpackers go. And I found, I found this place. It must have been 30p a night or something like that. And I had, it had no windows. 
And I walked into this room and it just said, welcome to, someone had written, there's loads of graffiti on it, it just said, welcome to cell 103. I'll never forget that. And it had like just walls, just a horrible like mattress on the floor. And I remember just going, cause it was late. I just landed and stuff. I remember just wrapping myself cause there was bugs everywhere. Just wrapping myself in my mosquito net that I diligently bought in London and just going to sleep and it, and just thinking, I, I, this is not what I planned, but actually, what it did, having no money, was it forced me to go out and meet people and work. So I did a bit of, I did DJing. I did DJing on the islands in Thailand. I worked in in bars in Sydney and I taught French. I, 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 I tutored uh, Dunedin, uh, Otago University students in, in the South Island of Dunedin, where I was the only Brit for miles because it's the middle of nowhere. And, and what that did is it just got me to really, it was the opposite of having responsibility, but in a good way. You know, I had to be creative. I had to find opportunities. I had to meet local people. I wasn't just on tour buses. And I think going through all, all those Asian countries, picking up bits of work, also traveling, doing the same in Australia and New Zealand, living there. I think when I got back, it was really, I kind of had a confidence that I didn't have before. I had, a, I had a worldliness that I kind of knew that, hey, you can just throw me into anything and I'm gonna make this work. Like literally, it can't be as bad as Cell 103. I got back and I, 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 I just knew that something would happen. I didn't have a plan again. Um, and what happened was one of the people I'd worked with at one of these TV companies, Flextech, which became UK TV, had gone to the BBC and it's, knew I'd come back and it said, do you want some temp work? There's some temp work on my team. So I went and did some temp work and that became a six year career till I left to go to ITN at the BBC where I went from finance to front frontline presenting, um, using probably those skills that I'd learned traveling and hustling or even hustling in the tennis club. <laughs> Tell us a little about the, the BBC and how it works, because I know for a lot of people, they'll be thinking, you know what, that sounds the most amazing job. I can't believe you can go in as a temp and you can end up sitting in front of the telly talking to millions of people. So so how did that work? Were, were you were you working walking down the corridor one day and the producer saw you and said, gosh, you you look just the right kind of person to, to present for us? How, I mean, how did it work? Yeah, they walked by and they said, he's got a face for radio. That's that's the guy we need. I was there in the early noughties, so I don't know how it's changed. It was competitive then. It was like the graduate, if you're an arts graduate as well, it was the graduate job to try and get. So the way I got out of the temping and into a proper job at the BBC, because you, when you get a staff job at the BBC, you're kind of set. You know, they're very hard to get. But once you get it, you kind of could stay there and people do stay there for their entire careers. The BBC is very good at moving people around. It's very open-minded, I think, and that's to its credit. So although I did feel constricted because I was so full of ideas and because I was so ready to, to, to do everything and anything and lacked any kind of focus, probably, you know, I felt it was a bit restrictive. But actually, they do open doors for you. And the first thing you do when you join is you do this thing called Upfront where you, you go and see the whole BBC. You see, you know, from the signing department through to journalism, through to the, you know, the, the drama team, you go and get a feel. And that's what's fantastic about it. I was able to apply for something called the attachment scheme, which took me from my finance based job. And I applied to go and work at the BBC Asian Network, which was which is radio. And the reason I did that is because, again, on the side and maybe this is the biggest lesson. On the side, I'd been doing other stuff. So I knew I wasn't up for finance. I knew I quite liked writing and being creative. So I'd been doing this thing, which I'd just fallen into. I'd met someone at a BBC event and we were doing this thing called the BBC Black and Asian Forum. And it was basically, we'd go out and just review gigs and you know cultural stuff that was you know British Asian or, or black. So when I applied to the attachment team, I had all this on, and it was the early days of online. In fact, online in those days was called BBC I. It wasn't the BBC, it was seen as this separate thing. Now, of course, it's just, it's just the world. But I'd done this stuff on the side. And so maybe the biggest lesson is that 
even if you're not doing the thing that's bang on what you want to do day to day, these these side hustles can really pay off. And for me, it really did. And so I applied to the attachment scheme with all this these articles I'd written, with my work I'd done in my own time, to apply to an Asian, you know, the BBC Asian Network. And they they granted that. And what it meant was I could go to an actual radio station and do these write-ups and do this kind of stuff as my job. And from there, I was just, you know, because I've got this kind of can-do approach, I think I was just able to, again, keep pushing, keep doing the stuff I really loved, keep meeting people. And that kind of took me ultimately into journalism and then presenting before I went to ITN. And then tell us about the move to ITN. So obviously things are going great at the BBC. You're learning loads. You keep developing. So why did you decide to leave for their competitor? It's a great question. And sometimes sometimes I have looked back at that decision thinking, hmm, was that the right decision? Because at the BBC, I was doing a show called Kicking Off on a Saturday afternoon, which was a live football show. And I had been doing it with Nihal, who's now stayed at the BBC, he's at Five Live. And then I got to present it on my own and, and it was great. And then I also was doing local sports reporting t- on TV and I, they were trying to train me to be, you know, a, a TV reporter. But then I think, I don't know how I heard of it, but I heard that ITM were launching this whole football channel. And remember, I'm in my early 30s or late 20s here they're launching their their own football channel with Satanta who in those days had bought the Premier League rights or at least some of them and they were launching a brand new channel with frontline anchors so you're not a, just a reporter you're an actual anchor of, of of live television and I just heard about it and I think I can't remember someone just said just gave me their email somehow I dropped them an email they dropped me an email and I went to see them on Gray's Inn Road. And it was just so exciting because it was it was kind of, at the time I was living up in Birmingham and it was back to London. And it was this whole new channel, lots of young people. They were the new kids on the block with the Premier League. I did a screen test and, they, and I did a test about sport as well, which is quite funny. But I ultimately got, they offered me the gig as a frontline presenter on a new channel at at ITN and I just thought this is a pretty cool opportunity everyone's new we're doing this launching this whole thing together it's 24 hour there's loads of content so I left now the the reason I sometimes I say I I look back and think was it the right decision it it was the right decision because of what's come after but the channel I was on that ITN were co-owners of was was Satanta Sports News and that went bust within two years because Satanta in the UK stopped trading so I then ended up with no broadcast career because I'd left the BBC, I'd given up a staff job and I could have tried to get back in, absolutely, but I just felt that that, because ITN's a commercial company as well, I felt that that impetus, that entrepreneurial spirit, I, I wanted to see, what I wanted to let that free a bit. So it was the right decision, but there's been times as an entrepreneur where I've had no security. There's been times when you've been, you know, chasing the POs and and I've sometimes thought, wouldn't it be lovely to have that comfort blanket? But it wouldn't. That tells us a lot about your nature yeah. and your desire to keep pressing on and doing new things, Rowan. So so talk to us about how you then became a, an entrepreneur after ITN. Talk to us about Innovate UK. Talk to us about Epiphany. Talk to us about your podcast now. You're writing a book tell us about your book so tell us what's happened leaving itn was was just about coming back to that entrepreneurialism and so i knew really that i i could do two things well this is in 2009 so i knew that i could get content created like broadcast quality because i knew i could operate a camera but i knew cameramen i knew editors i knew sound guys who were doing broadcast stuff and you combine that with the opportunity. So you see that the world is changing and that online content in those days was horrendous. And that, um, you know, organizations, business, big business, they, they needed to sharpen up. And as soon as one sharpened up, the whole lot of them would. 
So I knew I could create this stuff and I knew I could talk to anyone. <laughs> so I kind of put those two things together and I created Serge, which was my named after Serge Gainsbourg, the, um, the French kind of poet um, musician. And I named it after him because he's, because he's counterculture and he does did things his own way, sometimes questionably, but he did things his own way. So I created this production company that would provide broadcast quality services to the, the, the corporate world. And I started by supplying through friends, through my network, just supplying um, arts organizations, one called Arts and Business, which was a great organization that supported little arts companies and little manufacturers and artisans. And I started making videos for them. I then made a video for the Royal Warrant, which is obviously the Queen's Royal Warrant. I then started just from there building a portfolio and then able to go to go wider and to go to bigger, bigger organizations, bigger companies, working with agencies too. And, and in the end, I'd worked with some absolutely huge, you know, just me, my little organization, it probably grew to five, 10 people. And at its biggest, we were, we were then creating not just content, but we were creating, because it's that opportunist spirit, we were then creating microsites, so a bit of code as well. So suddenly being more like an agency, someone could go to you and say, it would be a full service offer. You could do a bit of social media as well. So I brought in all the different kinds of skill sets you would need to do that. Um, but it was no plan again. It was just, I, I've seen this as an opportunity. I can do this, let's bring them together. And it did, it did well. But I burnt out. I did it for five years and I burnt out. And I took a year or two off and I worked a bit in the third sector and I volunteered and stuff. And then I sort of worked out, well, what do I want to do? How can I bring this together in a way that's everything I've known done, but for good now, because this is now becoming a big thing for me. And then I, I, Epiphany was born and it was born to offer what we say is new solutions to old social problems so to try and use technology for good and whether that's we've just launched we're launching a nutrition institute with a huge healthcare company absolutely massive healthcare company that, that the aim of which is to upskill doctors in the area of nutrition because something that's very surprising to me before I worked in this with in this industry is doctors are trained and surgeons they're trained on treating symptoms none of them know much about prevention of problems so if you're going to your gp they're not they're not going to know much at all about nutrition so actually stopping the the inflammation before it becomes an autoimmune condition by eating properly is something that they don't do so we're trying to intercept that by providing the healthcare professional the knowledge and training they need in order to that then gets to the public that they can eat better and prevent problems before they become problems and hopefully in turn that will be good for the NHS in a long in a long term now it feels odd that we have to do that <laughs> it feels odd that little old me plus a massive healthcare company need to do that and it's not the government and I'm sure they are doing a lot but nevertheless there's a huge gap there with nutritional knowledge so doing projects using that kind of chutzpah, <laughs> trying to bring in expertise that I've built up over the last 20 years to try and solve social problems and health problems. So in this case, it's, you know, the obesity epidemic, it's the autoimmune epidemic, it's mental health epidemic, it's, it's big. Done other projects with big telcos, uh, big retailers, big NGOs. Um, and so it's, it's been good, but I've burned out again. <laughs> I might leave it on that cliffhanger. <laughs> so tell us, uh, I mean, you've done so much, Rowan. You've talked about effectively setting up two organisations and burning out. And it, is that because of the intensity you put in it? Is it the pressure of starting up businesses and running them? So just just give people an insight into the, the highs and the lows of, of those things. It depends how deep you want to get here, Mark. I'm going to go deep, so 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 strap in. But this journey I've been on has almost been running away from something as much as running towards something. So as much as I've run towards trying to be a success and now trying to make the world a better place, I've also been running away from some deep problems that I've had. So for me personally, 
there's there's been quite a lot of unresolved trauma, childhood trauma. And, you know, I talk about this a lot on my podcast and with, with various guests who've written about this kind of stuff. But I think the key thing for me and the biggest lesson I've learned is don't make anything. And nowadays the religion of work is such that we often make work the diversion. But don't make anything a replacement for, for good mental health. And if, you're, if you've got issues that keep nagging away and that have been there a long time, it's pertinent to deal with them. They become the most important thing. So the, the 7 a.m. Zoom is not the most important thing. The most important thing is being on an even keel or is getting as close as you can. Now, for me personally, I've struggled and I've only just, it's almost like you see it in the rear view mirror. I now know that the childhood trauma I suffered has really shaped my life. You know, when I look back now, it all kind of makes sense. And this is only a, something in the last couple of years that, that's occurred to me. When I was at the BBC, actually, I started doing a lot of talking therapy, which would be about, and I, I just started it because it was a free thing as being a BBC employee. And I knew that there was issues that I had, you know, that I wanted to talk about. So it was just useful to have someone to talk, talk to. That was kind of 15, 20 years ago. But it never got to the root of what the problem was. For me, I've, I've just been diagnosed last year with chronic anxiety disorder, generalized. And because I worked from that place, I was never satisfied. I was always kind of, you know, looking for the next thing, moving around. And, and, and unfortunately, I, this looks great, the career I've had. It's, 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 it's a, you know, like you say, it's what a lot of people might aspire to doing, you know, working at a big broadcast corporation, global, working, you know, setting up two businesses that are successful, working with huge clients in very di different sectors, doing projects that hopefully will have a big impact on society. But I didn't enjoy any of it, really. I was always, I couldn't stop to enjoy it. And, and I think the reason I say I've burnt myself out again, and I've literally, I've taken a break, but what I've come to realize is within me there was a simmering discomfort that I needed to prioritize above all these other things that I've been putting to the back of the queue and I needed to get it to the front of the queue and so for me it's about having specific therapy integrated therapy to deal with this and I'm lucky because I can take the break and I can do that and I can really focus on it but I think for a lot of us we don't even we don't even put it to the front of the queue we don't realize how important it is and actually one one broad thing I'll say I don't want to be too generalist here, but I have worked. Uh, there's not many sectors I haven't worked in uh, as being a, a essentially a consultant for the last 10, 12 years. I see, and I'm talking right from startup, but especially in big corporate organizations, because I'm so sensitive, because I've got this anxiety disorder, and I never rationalized it like this before. I just thought it was just the way I was. But because I'm so sensitive, I've been very sensitive to people's discomfort because I've shared it. And I do think that that's, there is a simmering discontent also in the workplace. And I'm talking about, you know, huge telcos down to startups to even to charities. There's that, there's kind of a simmering discontent and, and I've noticed it a lot. And I remember not being, not be, ever being a fan of going into an office. This is before COVID. This is always, you know, I, I would always prefer video calls. And it's because I was very, very sensitive to this, this simmering discontent. And it might show itself in a kind of, in presenteeism. I think that's, presenteeism is a symptom of unresolved trauma in an organization. Now, whether that comes from the top usually does or other places, the idea that you have to show that you are beating yourself up more than anyone else to be of value is an intrinsic problem with the psyche of work, I think the way we have it at the moment. Equally, I think the amount that I've witnessed, and it's not always to me, you know, there was one time when I was with a, I won't name any names, but I was with my client who is, you know, head of CSR, a major British company. And the first time I met her boss, she made her cry in front of me. And that's not the first time that happened. Usually it's not as avert of that, it's more passive aggression. But I think that the, the always on passive aggression presenteeist culture that we've kind of accepted as the norm 
um, for people who are super sensitive to it, like me, it's intolerable. But for most people, they just go on and carry on and suck it up because obviously they've got other pressures. But I do think on my level, I'm taking a break because I'm working out and putting my own well-being to the top of the queue, as I say. But I do think from what I've witnessed that a lot of people and organizations per se could well do with doing the same. I know you're writing a book, beginning to write a book. Is that what it's about? Yeah, because I think there's one thing, there's one thing just complaining, right? And that's the, what ends up happening, I've noticed in workforces. People will whinge and complain and some of them, you know, just end up having a lifestyle that's not particularly healthy. And they're just, there's that general malaise. And I just thought, well, rather than just trying to, you know, just call it out, why don't you try and work out what's helped you and how it can help others? And maybe if you do it in that way, if you did it that way around, you could make a change because it would be on an individual basis rather than the usual top down. Right, we're all going, it's mental health month, everyone. Right, come and see us if you've got a mental health problem. You know, rather than that, it could be from the ground up and, and maybe that would then be more long lasting. So I am writing a book, which is going to be, it's going to point out some of the things I've noticed, some of the things we're talking about. It's going to have more kind of specifics uh, without naming names or anything but it's going to ultimately try and offer solutions and I, I touched on this you know this idea that top down isn't the right way but it it's not just business if you look at politics or society everything we've tried to do to make things better if we think if we class um, real success as everybody succeeding so you succeed I succeed the, the, the gap between rich and poor gets smaller, all that kind of stuff, all that good stuff. If we take that as the golden egg, there's been a lot of attempts, hasn't there, over the years to try and make that happen. But it's always been top down, whether it's been, you know, socialism. It's, it's great ideas, but don't enforce things on people because you're going to end up with inertia and corruption, <laughs> which is what happens. It has to come the other way. It has to come from individuals up. To make any difference the problem is is that that's not very sexy to say that it's also making people have to take responsibility themselves which again is can be a little bit off-putting if you already got an inbox this high and 12 zoom, zoom meetings a day and also it doesn't satiate that need in humans to be able to follow something that is you know i'm the messiah i'm the ceo i'm the prime minister i'm the pre it doesn't give you that never so i don't expect it to be i hope it's a very popular book but it's not it's not following the the well-trodden path of how you create a movement but that's precisely why i think it's needed because i think those things don't work and we know that for, because of history so the book is is about what i've noticed the book is about the kind of presenteeism passive aggression the busyness the kind of inertia the kind of people just running around meetings about meetings, the corporate parlance, you know, these things that we can joke about, let's kick the tires. You know, we can joke about this stuff, but I really think having witnessed this for a few years, there's part of a bigger problem, a much deeper problem, which is this kind of trauma that we're, that people are, are suffering. You know, we put on an ego, we use that language because we're putting distance between the real us, which we're protecting, and our work face. We have that telephone voice because we, there's a gap between us and therefore we can protect ourselves. Now that shouldn't be the case. We can't be truly productive if that's the face we're turning up at work with. But it is unfortunately what a lot of people do having, having witnessed that. So it's the things I've noticed, then the more serious stuff, you know, the bullying that I've witnessed, the frustration, the alcohol abuse, all that kind of stuff that are symptoms of this. And then more, you know, going down the line to depression and anxiety, which is now quite rightly being recognised as a major problem, to things like climate destruction that I think are also linked. You know, the more we don't question, the more we just go ahead and do things, the, the worse our habitat gets. So I'm setting out the, the reasons why I think this book is relevant. But then ultimately, I'm going to try and suggest personal ways to deal with it. 
I mean, that's going to take a chunk of your time now. So although you're you're taking time out, you're not really taking time out. Um, I'm just um, doing it do again, think, aren't I? Yeah, what, what will you do after the book, do you think? I think because this book's quite all-encompassing, it's difficult to answer that with any kind of, without it being pure guesswork. Um, I think that I've enjoyed doing the podcast. I think this book has really shaped because of the podcast. I think the great guests I've had who have been credible, thanks to my producer, Emma, um, they've really, you know, they've opened my eyes to certain things from the world of law. You know, I had, I've had people from, I've had people from Planet uh, Earth, Client Earth, who are a big law firm who have got only one client and that's the Earth. And they're taking business and countries and politicians to court if they break accords and agreements on climate. I've had Buddhist nuns. I've had Sunday Times journalist, Matt, talking about suicide and men's health, mental health, um, you know, CEOs of, of inspiring businesses. Um, and I think it shaped this book. Now, equally, I can't, because I'm not a fan of 10, 5, 2, 1, even half year plans, I don't think they work. I think they're just a part of the problem, to be honest. But I don't, I'm, I'm really looking to write this and see what the version of me is like once I've written it. I do enjoy doing the podcast. I do, it's back to my broadcast days, but it's combining it with meaning. I do enjoy uh, writing. And so I think it's going to be in that sphere. I don't think it's going to be, working as a supplier or consultant anymore because i think that my drive for doing that work was probably not as self-serving as it should be yours is is such a fascinating story what you've seen of the world going into the world of media being successful setting up a successful uh, business as an entrepreneur then doing work around purpose and now obviously finding even more purpose in writing your book and it's a really inspirational story and and tell me is, is there a piece of music that you listen to and it makes you um makes you feel happy Rowan wow. you put it on and all of a sudden everything seems a bit brighter there's two albums I always go to simple things by zero seven and um moon safari by air and they're both from the same period they're both from um late 90s I'd say I guess what they've got in common is they're very calming they are they're just very orchestrally complete um interesting multi-layered skillfully worked kind of music done by proper musicians but with an electrical kind of medium if there was somebody that you could listen to talk about work and whether they were happy at work and how they might improve their workplace happiness who who would you who would you ask to talk to or listen to that's a very very different can i ask you a question mark as many as you like <laughs> you've obviously been a successful um person working in big big business retail um have any of the things that i've talked about on the not so positive side been things that you've noticed and if so how did you navigate so that you were able to be as successful as, you, as you've been and didn't, I, and, didn't I, and didn't need career breaks every five years yeah. <laughs> well i've i've been incredibly lucky i i spent 34 years with the john lewis partnership and the supreme purpose of the john lewis partnership is the happiness of the people that work there so i spent my entire working life in an organization that was constantly trying to figure out um, if people were happy and how you made them happy if they weren't. And so way before um, people thought of it, um, uh, John Lewis branches and Waitrose shops had uh, their own doctors, um, uh, chiropodists, uh, financial support for people who fell on hard time, and um, a, a real willingness to look after the people there. So I can honestly say in my 34 years with John Lewis, I never ever felt that I made a decision that I wasn't happy with or I wasn't comfortable with or wasn't the right thing. So I was never put into a position where uh, I felt 
awkward about my work or compromised uh, in terms of my own personal beliefs. Um, when I went to work in the government, it wasn't like that. I did nearly two years working in the government and I discovered that wasn't a working environment that was going to suit me long term. And, you know, for, to his great credit, David Cameron didn't ask me to do it long term. When I've left, um, my business now is about helping people understand how happy they are at work and how they can be happier. And so for me, the vast majority of my working life has been spent thinking about what do you have to do to help people have the best possible time they can have in work? Sometimes that's quite hard rowing because you have to say to people, you know what, you're a great person, but you're probably in the wrong job. So I've not, I've been very, very, very lucky. I've not had those circumstances. I've done jobs that I haven't liked as much, but I've always felt well supported by managers. I've always felt that um, the organization I was in cared about my well-being, wanted me to to succeed and that's what I want for other people and that's why your story today has been so inspiring because the honesty that you um you bring to your story which as you say 90% of 99% of people listening to this podcast would say what an amazing career you know to have done all of those things and to be able to say you know what those things didn't really make me happy I'm sort of searching and then finding purpose and then exploring your own mental health and um, what you can do to improve that and sharing that journey to help others. I think those are the things that will bring you real joy, comfort and contentment as you move forward. And I think recognizing that is a big thing. One of the, um, and the last point I've had is one of the things that I, I realized very early on um, when I went into John Lewis partnership, I said, you know, what I want to be is a managing director, then I want uh, a general manager, then I want to be a managing director. And as I got each of those bigger jobs, all it made me want was the next big job. And I got to the point when I recognized that the next big job was never going to satisfy me. And where I got my real satisfaction was looking after the people that work for me and creating an environment where everybody achieved together and we all celebrated together and we all had fun together. And so probably after about four or five years, I worked out that it was that that gave me the greatest satisfaction um, rather than the personal stuff. So my career has mainly been about helping all the people around me be the best that they can be um, and getting you know, the joy from that. But anyway, this is not a no, podcast no, no. about... No, no. about I think you've picked up some really interesting things there. And I, I like, I like, I think this is, this will be more useful to people listening because you have hit on something that is the, if you to take the stick of rock of my story and look at the bit down the middle, it would be all the glitters is not gold or there's no crock of gold at the end of the rainbow. I think you try and do these things, as you say, and you get to that point and you go, Oh, I'm still like this, you know, I'm still me. I've still got this, I've still got that. And actually it's probably finding what means something to you. And to you, it was about helping others. And I think I would say as a human, as a homo sapien, that's probably gonna ring true with most people if they're honest and can get, get in touch with themselves. And for you, if you did it within four or five years, you're a better man than me. And yeah, but if you go back, Rowan, to the ancient Greek philosophers, they, they, I mean, there's some things that they write, which I think um, is as powerful and as pertinent today as when they wrote it 3,000 years ago. But Socrates talked about happiness and what creates happiness. Um, and he talked about the fact that um, you get happiness from achieving things. Um, you get happiness from owning things, buying things. But he says that that gives you fleeting happiness. And what he goes on to say, and Aristotle said 100 years after him, is actually real happiness comes from altruism through helping others. And it's lasting. And so if you reflect back on most people's lives and you say, tell me something that makes you happy, they won't talk about getting a car or buying a house. They'll talk about something that was personal, something that normally involves helping another person. And that sort of deep wired into us. So that whole thing about, as, as you're so powerfully doing, using purpose to be the focus of your, you know, your focus of your energies. And if you can also build that into a business, then that's doubly motivating because you're getting both the helping elements and you're getting the, 
the other elements that come hopefully through success. I wonder though, and John Lewis partnership is unique. It's unique. It's a co- it's a cooperative, right? So um, most FTSE companies are not. Uh, they have shareholders who are separate and they're watching the next quarter like hawks. I do wonder whether we are able to give people who don't work at John Lewis or even the BBC I might put into a similar category as John Lewis because it doesn't have external commercial shareholders pushing the agenda. But I wonder how possible it is for people to find that Socratic approach, which I am wholeheartedly behind, when the focus of our economies, of our politicians' minds, is gross domestic product and industry at all costs, whether the cost is the future of our oxygen, ability to breathe oxygen, or our current mental health. Because I do wonder about those of us who aren't at wonderful cooperatives, the reality of their lives and their back-to-back you know, 10 Zoom meetings a day, whether they can find that clarity to be able to, you know, shape a world, a working world that they can, when the focus now more than ever is the drive towards yeah. productivity, production, yeah. gross domestic product. I no, you're, 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 you're right to identify that. And the reason that um, uh, I've set up Workle and have great people like you on the podcast is because what I'm trying to do is make the world a little bit happier. And I'm trying to do that through helping people be happier at work. And we've worked with organizations and all the academic evidence says that if you have a happy and engaged workforce, they will, um, they'll stay longer. They'll be more productive. Your company will be more successful. Your profits will be higher. And there's lots of academic evidence that says that. So there is a, a, a link um, proven academically for more than 40 years now that those companies that have the greatest levels of happiness and engagement in their workforce also commercially successful. John Lewis realized that 100 years ago. Yeah. Richard Branson realized that 30 years ago. Um, the King of Bhutan, who wishes happiness on all of his subjects, realizes that. The UAE recently have just changed the way in which they're measuring things from um, GDP to happiness. So I think increasingly there is a realization that, you know, happiness, good mental health, all of these things are positives that business should be embracing. And that if you're going out just to um, get the most you can from your people in the shortest possible time, it, it has consequences. It has really bad short term consequences. It might have some good short term financial benefits, but long term it's not good. So you're right. You're absolutely right to pick that up. And um, it's great to know that you're championing that in all that you do. Well, I, w- I wish you all the best in that because I do hope it, it's duh, right? When you say it like that, happy people, happy workforce is going to be more longevity. You're going to attract more graduates, which they're all fighting over the next generation. If, you, if you're a happy functioning organization that deals with people's as people not cogs in a machine you're going to be more successful medium and long term which is ultimately what we should all be looking at so it's obviously it sounds like duh and the reason it it sounds so obvious or the because it sounds so obvious i do worry because i think this has been you mentioned socrates confucius was talking about this even before him the buddha was talking about this even before him so we've known this from from two and two thousand eight hundred years of written history and philosophical thought, and yet we're still in twenty twenty one talking about the fact that happy people is better. You know that equation, that simple equation, and it gets lost, doesn't it? It gets lost in the in the in the battlefield of of work, and that that I hope we can finally grasp that. I'm going to leave people with two things to do, which is going to be in my book. Two things to do that um, will take you, if we talk neurologically, so you want to move from the sympathetic nervous system, which is the reactionary. So when you see people running around in lobbies or running between meetings, they're in their sympathetic nervous system. They're using their their amygdala. They're, They're reactive. They're in fight or flight. That's how a lot of people spend most of their working days because they are being pushed and pulled and harried and etc 
you want to move from that because when you're in that fight or flight, your body is sending all of its resources to running and fleeing. It doesn't need much cognitive, doesn't need to use the new part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which gives you perspective, intelligence, you know, long, long-term planning, all the cool stuff we really need to get to a place that you're talking about. So you want to move from the, wherever you can, the sympathetic to the parasympathetic system, and that will get you into your, your new part of your brain, the cortex. So to do that, the, 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 quick, the quickest ways, there's no easy, there's no other way to say it than meditation is the way. But most people aren't going to meditate for 20 minutes in the morning and in the afternoon, as is proven by the WHO will have a huge effect on your life. And when people ask, someone quoted the other day said, when people say, oh, you're meditating, why are you doing that? Because I used to go and in WeWork, there was a meditation room that only I used. But they'd say, well, why, why are you? You know why are you why are you doing that and they, i'd be like well because it centers me and it makes me better and they, they wouldn't be interested but then when i said it makes me have a 10 percent better day then they're interested right they're in they're suddenly and this is i'd heard that from a, a, an american news anchor who'd also said it but it's so true so literally sit down five breaths where you breathe in hold it for five breathe out hold it for five literally do that whenever you remember you can't do that enough you can do it at your desk you can do it on the, as we're opening up now on the train. You can do it wherever you are. Five breaths, close your eyes. That will make a huge difference. That will get you into the parasympathetic system. That will get you the part of your brain that's able to do all the things you want to do. And it will make you less reactive. And that's crucial. So I'd say that's the first thing to do. And the second thing to do is something we've all been doing more of, I, I think, before Zoom got in the way which is just experiencing the outdoors. And I know for people like me who grew up in an inner city, that's hard. And you can actually combine both these things, obviously, because you can do five breaths in and out when you're walking, but just some form of breaking up that day. I call it in my, my book, portfolio days. So you don't see your day as Zoom to Zoom and then kids and then bath time and then bed. You see it as Zoom walk, Zoom five breaths, how, however you can split that up so it's not just one bulk of activity because that is a one-way ticket to your sympathetic nervous system that's going to leave you reactive and unable to function at your your fullest so i think if you're able to do those two things um from today as little or as much as you can it's going to make a huge difference not tomorrow but in the next week the next month you're going to notice a big difference that's great Thank you very much for that, Rowan. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you on this edition of the Work All Happiness podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Absolutely. And power to you as well. Thank you for listening. For more on this podcast, head to workall.co where you can find out how you can get happier at work. Happier at work.